0: As significant health inequities persist across the U.S., healthcare systems have an important role to play in achieving health equity. That's what this episode of WIHI is about. Providing healthcare professionals with a framework on how to identify and reduce these health disparities is an important first step. And that's why we're proud to invite you to ICHI's virtual expedition called Achieving Health Equity, beginning October 10th, 2017. In six sessions, this virtual team based training will help your participants identify whether structures are in place that support equity work, prioritize a strategic plan, and collect, stratify, and analyze data with an equity lens. ICHI's virtual expeditions are an engaging and affordable way for your team to build the skills and gain the knowledge they need to make an impact at your organization. Achieving Health Equity starts on October 10th. For more information, visit IHI.org expeditions or shoot us an email at info at IHI.org. We hope to see you there. Now here's WIHI.
1: When IHI published a white paper last summer called Achieving Health Equity, the authors offered a framework for the healthcare community coupled with a challenge to turn up the volume on equity as a priority and to broaden the scope and vision of who and what could be impacted. Now, eight health systems have taken up that challenge and are working with IHI and with one another to translate renewed commitments and curiosities into new facts on the ground. We have two of these health systems with us to tell us what they're focusing on and why. What does it take to make a significant leap forward with health equity today? We're going to ask our panelists and ask you, too, for your ideas and examples on this edition of WIHI. And I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live biweekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Community. Communications. Now, one of the goals of IHI's Pursuing Equity Initiative, which WIHI draws from today, is to get really serious about solutions and to demonstrate that equity is part of true quality improvement and the triple aim, not just some of the time, but all of the time. At the same time, the realities of structural racism in the US, implicit bias, and the many ways marginalized populations have experienced healthcare over decades and decades, and experience it still now, has to be acknowledged and made part of the learning and journey forward. So we're going to get to our introductions in just a moment, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier, and as always, he's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today.
0: John. All right, cool. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program Um, on the right of the screen it's a chat window and if you've tuned into the program before you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat it's also where you can ask our panelists your questions so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants match opens up the floor to questions a little later this allows our panelists panelists and your colleagues on Webex to see all the questions and comments being shared Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged on to the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through your headphones or speakers, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple solution to any hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that keeps up, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here. Uh, Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge.
1: All right. Thanks so much, John. And we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions out about the halfway mark of the show. We do welcome tweeting during and after the program. And thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so others can be part of the conversation. All right. Two introductions. Uh, Joining us by phone, we have Michael Hannock, who's an academy, excuse me, an academic family physician and associate chief medical informatics officer at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. He is the founding medical director of the Rush Center for Preoperative Care and is presently co-chair of the Medical Group's Quality Committee. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Also on the phone, we have Michelle Morse. She's founding co-director of Equal Health and assistant program director for the internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Michelle works as an internal medicine hospitalist at Brigham and Women's Hospital through the Division of Global Health Equity. Welcome, Michelle.
2: Thanks so much. Great to be with you.
1: Two wonderful people across the table from me. Abigail Ortiz is Director of Community Health Programs at Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center in Boston, where she's worked since 2003. She is committed to eliminating racial inequities in health through public health equity strategies, community engagement, and youth driven organizing. It's so great that you're here, Abby. Thank you. And finally, Amy Reed is a director at IHI leading the organization's efforts to advance health equity. Amy's health equity leadership encompasses strategy development, initiative design, implementation and evaluation, teaching and coaching. Is there anything else you're not doing? Um, Amy. <laughs> and this includes directing IHI's pursuing equity initiative which our panelists are part of. Welcome, Amy.
3: Thank Thanks. Okay.
1: Great. All right. We're going to start with Amy. She's going to do some framing and kind of scene setting for us, uh, telling some of you for the first time and reminding some of you about the Pursuing Equity Initiative, what it's all about, uh, why it came together, and what the teams are working on. Thanks, Amy.
3: Thanks, Madge. Hi, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be with you here today. I'm looking forward to seeing your questions and comments in the chat and also on Twitter. So I'm Amy Reed, the director for the Pursuing Equity Initiative, and we kicked off in April of this year because we believe that healthcare has a really important role to play in advancing health equity, that we can do more to build on the great work that's already been done and to continue pushing to advance health equity. And so I wanna do just a couple of things. And the first is to start us off with what we're talking about here so we can get on the same page. And then I'm gonna dive into a bit about our theory of what is it gonna take for healthcare to advance equity. So first, when we talk about health equity, we mean that everyone has a fair opportunity to attain their full health potential. So really key here is a fair opportunity which points us to what is the distribution of resources, of opportunities across our our communities. The second way I want to get us on the same page is looking at health inequity. So there's going to be differences that we see as we're looking at clinical outcomes, but we're talking about a specific subset of these differences that are systematic, that are avoidable, and that are unjust. So our systems have actually created these in a very predictable way, these inequities that we continue to see. And last is to get on the same page about racism and the definition of racism. There's a number of definitions here we offer David Wellman's, which is racism as a system of advantage based on race. So we're going to dive in now to talking about our um, five pillars of our work. So this is, this is IHI's initial theory about what it's going to take for health care to advance equity. So the first part of this is that health equity has to be a strategic priority. So when you look at your strategic plans in your organizations, is equity there? So that's number one. The second is once it's a priority, then do you actually have the resources and the structures to support that strategic priority? So oftentimes we'll end up putting together a council that's expected to work on their free time outside of their job over on the side to advance equity. But here it's about actually resourcing a group of people and having this as a part of their role to advance this work. The third part of our theory is about the, the specific strategies that healthcare can use to advance equity. So, certainly in the clinical processes and clinical care we deliver, that's often where we think, but also outside of healthcare services. So, thinking about socioeconomic status and educational attainment of employees thinking about procurement and supplies from women and minority-owned businesses. So what are all the ways that healthcare can leverage their position, their role as a large employer to advance equity? The fourth part of our theory is about decreasing institutional racism in healthcare. So that's looking at the systems, the structures, the policies that healthcare has and other systems across the U.S. that Perpetuate these racial inequities that we find by design, and so can we dig into these and and dismantle these. And then the last piece is about developing partnerships with community organizations. So again, this is our initial theory built on the work of so many um, about what it's going to take for healthcare to advance equity. And what we're doing in the pursuing equity initiative is working with eight partners and two of whom we have with us today, to uh, really advance our learning and get it to further detail about what it's going to take to advance equity. Okay.
1: Thanks very much, uh, Amy. We're going to hold that slide, John, uh, just uh, for a few minutes. We're going to come back to that with with Amy in terms of some uh, takeaways and more ways to understand the initiative right now. I want to turn now to Michelle Morse and Abigail. Um, They're kind of joined at the hip these days. Uh, Reflecting (laughs) really kind of a large uh, project in a way, um, how to bring uh, um, kind of a lot of different issues in history of an academic teaching hospital and the community uh, and a community health center. Uh, together, And I think one of the things that's interesting about this framework here is when you really do sit down to start to do the work um, or pick up uh, uh, further the work uh, organizations have been doing, there are a lot of ways in and people do have to find really where is the starting point or where really are we. Um, I think it's tempting to dive in and say, all right, we're going to work on this, 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 and this. And I think what you're going to hear from Michelle and Abigail is the kind of courageous, well, willingness to step back and say, who are we? Um, and, you know, what are we trying to do on behalf of whom? So let's start with you, Michelle. Uh, I My question to you is, what's the significance of te- teaming up with the S- Southern Jamaica Plain uh, Health Center to work on health equity? What are you focusing on? Thanks.
2: Absolutely. It's such an honor to get to speak about this work uh, because it's unfortunately unique within our institution. I think there's a really exciting opportunity um, and window of opportunity right now in the Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's where there really is interest in exploring what health equity means for the Department of Medicine. And what better way to do that then teaming up with Southern Jamaica Health Center, which has been doing racial equity and health equity work for quite some time now and has already been able to be successful in many ways, which Abby will talk uh, about in in a moment. Um, So I think we are excited from the Department of Medicine side to get to learn and kind of reverse innovate because the Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center has already been through a lot of what we are going to need to address and clarify and define within the Department of Medicine to effectively address our challenges when it comes to health equity. Um, And I think one of the initial and key lessons that we've already started to learn together is that um, diversity and inclusion and the language around diversity and inclusion alone is really not the answer. Um, There's often a reflex, I would say, at institutions, um, academic institutions in particular, to think that diversity and inclusion alone is the answer to fixing health equity issues. Um, And I think what we've started to realize very quickly is that language around diversity and inclusion and starting diversity and inclusion initiatives alone is really not the right first step. Um, in fact, uh, you know, issues or challenges with not having enough diversity or not having, quote unquote, an inclusive culture is really more kind of the end result of systemic racism and structural racism rather than the actual root cause of the issue. Um, and what we've often seen happen is that there's lots of language, um, lunches, uh, sessions around diversity and inclusion and work, and work around that issue without necessarily really taking the step back that you were alluding to, Marge, uh, Madge, to really define, well, what is the problem um, and why don't we have enough diversity and inclusion, but really what's behind that and what's behind that for our patients as well? Um, so that's one of the key lessons that we started to learn. And the second thing I want to mention in terms of um, exciting opportunities and things that we're already starting to learn through this partnership with Southern Jamaica Health Center, as well as IHI, is that um, the work that needs to happen is at an institutional level and needs to be um, led um, with the engagement of leadership. Um, I think that that has been a big challenge in the past, but what's really exciting is that there has been uh, an, an upsurge and an in, uh, in interest amongst residents, faculty, and others to really start to address at the root, why health equity has not been a priority and actually make it a priority. And I think what we immediately also started to see is that when leadership sees health equity as a priority, things really start to change and infrastructure is created and things really start to move uh, in a way that's not possible when it's not a priority. Um, And I will say that Brigham does still have work to do in that arena um, because health equity is not one of our strategic Priorities right now, but what we have uh, the opportunity to do with Southern Jamaica Plains support and leadership and guidance, as well as the guidance of IHI through pursuing equity, is really push for that decision um, at the top. And our hope is to be able to really work towards that such that we can make structural change and not just a change at the level of having more people of color and more women and more uh, underrepresented groups, uh, because our belief is really that that is kind of the downstream effect um, rather than the actual source. So, we, uh, one of our colleagues, Denise um, Butler McKay, also says says this very beautifully by saying that diversity is really a diagnostic tool. It tells you whether or not uh, you know the institution's looking at health equity uh, in a way that's framed with racial justice, but is not really the source of the problem. Um, So I hope that that uh, gives you a little bit of a sense of both what we're hoping to do, what we've learned already, and and the direction that we're hoping to go in in partnership with SJP and
1: pursuing equity. Okay, that does help. I want to just ask you one quick question before I turn to Abigail. Um, Let's, uh, you used this fascinating phrase, and I just, I went by and I went, oh, I wrote that one down, reverse innovate. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I think what often happens, particularly, again, at big academic institutions like Brigham, is that we think we have all of the answers. um, And we think that, you know, with evidence-based medicine and with being uh, a research powerhouse and a... um, knowledge generating powerhouse that, you know, we know exactly what to do and how to approach um, any medical issues. But health equity is unique. Um, And in fact, institutions, academic institutions across the country have unfortunately often been a challenge or barrier to achieving health equity rather than facilitating it. So it's an area where often academic institutions do not have the expertise and don't really know how to prioritize or approach Issues of health equity.
1: Okay, all right. That's
2: and a- Southern Jamaica Point of Health Center is a place where they've already made um, huge advances when it comes to health equity. And health centers, unfortunately, are not. Um, frequently enough in forming strategy priorities and implementation at the academic institution level. Um, and so our huge opportunity mm-hmm. is to really learn about what this health center Southern Jamaica Plain has done and bring that, reverse innovate, bring that knowledge and experience into um, the institution at Brigham and the hospital and academic center
1: side. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate that. And uh, we're now uh, going to hear from Abigail and uh, Abby, should I say Abby or Abigail? Abigail. Abigail's yes. fine. And um, so Michelle has said there's a lot to learn from Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center. Um, that must be perhaps a little victory um, of sorts that there's the acknowledgement of that there's something to learn here. Yep. And um, so tell us about the journey that you're on here and kind of some of your your hopes in terms of what you're doing. Thanks.
4: Sure. Thank you for having me back. This is so exciting. Um, so first, I just want to make sure I am really clear in saying that that our health center is licensed under the Brigham. So we are literally a department of the Brigham. Um, which is one of the reasons why it was crucial um, as we began to expand our racial justice and health equity and social justice work um, to get back to what I always call the mothership, right? Because <laughs> we could only, as a health center, we need to then really connect back in with with leadership at Brigham. Um, so what we've found that, you know, what we've done historically at the health center is spent a lot of time teaching and talking to people about the fact that there are health inequities, and, and showing data, and it's always very painful, and we sort of put that out for everybody to look at. Um, but we really never spent any time in the narrative about why they were there. And and therein lay a real problem because it didn't help us get to a shared analysis of the context and the history and the why. So... Um, that that piece i think is where we had been doing a deeper dive over the years and and we found that once we got clear about that history it really changed the way we even ran like cooking classes and diabetes education and you know um what we would sort of consider sort of health education downstream stuff, stuff in the exam room just helping patients figure out how to access stuff across the social determinants, um, that that, ana- that, that shared analysis and getting everybody on the same page really mattered. So I just want to, I'm putting this, this slide up for folks to look at. I'm not going to go into it in depth at all. Um, and this is intense stuff. So if folks have a feeling looking at this, I, I, I do too. Um, this is from, uh, Clayton and Bird's two novels, uh, novels, two, two, uh, academic books that were put out called American Health Dilemma. Um, and then Bay Love from the Racial Equity Institute sort of put it together in this beautiful slide. Um, so instead of, I, I just want to show it to folk in that, um, when we think about medicine and public health as institutions, um, most of that whole structure was, was defined, codified, um, and created all the infrastructure during two major periods of time that took take up about 87% of our history as a racialized country. And when I say that, I mean, starting in 1619, when the first enslaved Africans were brought over to Jamestown. Certainly... There was racism before that. And we have to start with what happened to the indigenous communities. But we can say that, you know, all that that whole time period of chattel slavery, and then Jim Crow was when we sort of set up medicine and public health. And in fact, during that time, White supremacy, sort of white on top, every else on bottom, with anti-blackness throughout, was codified into medicine. I mean, we we, were, we actually all of our research was used by the Nazis and the eugenics movement, and and all of our um our all of our medical history is based in that stuff. So it wasn't until sixty five that we entered into what we would call sort of structural racism, where all of that goes under cover and becomes very silent. Um, and and yet we're we're surprised when we see studies in 2016 that medical students think that Black folks have thicker skin, right? And oh, it's bias, and what's going on? And it's across race that people think that. And I think having a shared analysis about how medicine and all, by the way, education and housing and trans, you know transit systems were all produced during this time period that we have a really hard time looking at and talking about. Um, makes it really hard to then talk about what equity looks like. Because if we don't have a shared analysis, I I could be doing equity work, and Madge, you could be doing health equity work, and we could be doing projects that are actually counter each other, right? I'll just give a quick example. Um, And I love that uh, Dr. Ansel, uh, who's at Rush as well, I'm sure Michael is connected with him, just put out a book called The Death Gap, which is really powerful. But he talks a lot in one chapter about precision medicine, which is essentially – Saying, oh, you know, if race is somehow genetic, which has been completely debunked, we know that that racial categories are not genetic. um, But you know, the pharma and others have sort of brought back this idea that somehow there's a genetic basis to racial categories. So we need to do different drugs for black and brown folks or black folks than we do for white folks, and this I. This idea of precision medicine could be our health equity initiative, right? And, and in good faith. And I'm not, again, I w- want to encourage people not to, to personalize the critique of systems. There's beautiful people working in really messed up systems. But if that is your definition of race and racism, you're going to have a whole series of interventions that are about sort of genetics and race. Whereas if you're thinking of racism as a system of advantage based on race and you're thinking of it as something that's socially constructed, first of all, you might start to think about what the medical institution can do, as Amy said, to to impact social determinants outside. And that's, you know, housing and transit and all those things. And is there a role of hospitals to get engaged in that? And then for us folk who are inside the providers and the staff, because we're like, hey, we can't do housing advocacy, right? We're in here treating patients. Just that to begin to bring it back to us of what can we do immediately tomorrow about this. And we really have uh, found that when you start to get an analysis that's shared where you're really understanding where the ideology comes from and how medicine's been created to sort of maintain the racial hierarchy, there's all kinds of different interventions you can do in the exam room, even during the primary care visit. And we're about to um, share a paper that was developed with, it's not really, it's like almost a manual, like a how-to kind of framework for engaging in this work around your own you know, understanding of how you, you know, your own racial location and understanding the history, understanding how to talk about this stuff on your team as a, as a provider or as a administrator. And we're going to share that soon online. You can sort of see the kind of rubric that we've come up with, a, a group of different providers with IHI participation, kind of going deep on like, what what can we do in the exam room? What does it mean to change how we're thinking about structural racism and owning some of this history? And it's it's painful, but it is so exciting, and I would say very liberating to start telling the truth about this stuff, and it really lends itself to doing different types of interventions. Um, so. Oh. It's a- that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. All right. Very, uh, big, big issues and big mm-hmm. topics here. And everybody's, uh, good sport doing it on WIGI mm-hmm. in this sort of rapid way. I want to show a couple of, uh, other. We had, uh, certainly the upstream, downstream. I think this slide will make a, a, a lot of sense to people. We hope for sure. And then, um, Abby had, uh, and Michelle have two others, which I think, kind of reinforce uh, with some nice images there, I think, uh, the ways in which um, advantage Uh, works and structural racism works, and a very nice one more, uh, John, um, this glossary. So I think uh, all in an effort here, so a reminder, all the slides, you can download them, they'll also be posted to our website uh, as of tomorrow, Um, you know, giving people a language, a language uh, that can affect almost quickly is maybe greater awareness and interactions with patients, but when people are talking with one another. Um, all right. I want to turn to uh, Michael. I have uh, questions buzzing around in my head in terms of what Brigham and Women's in Southern Jamaica Plain might choose as, in, as an intervention. You kind of s- uh, wrapped up your remarks saying it's amazing what you might be able to do. So let's hold that thought for a moment. What, what might uh, be some interesting interventions? But let's uh, turn now to Michael uh, out there uh, in the Chicago area and uh, it's great to have you with us and to have Rush represented in terms of the work that you're doing. And um, one thing it sounds like you have come to this initiative with is a lot of data. And uh, that's part of what got uh, Amy and I talking about. What does data tell you and what does it mean to even have some curiosity uh, about your data? So uh, go ahead and uh, talk with us um, about sort of what you're doing with a lot of the information uh, that you have before you, um, uh, perhaps in some new and different ways. Thanks, Michael.
5: Sure. Thank you. And thanks for having us. And, and I'm appreciative to, to IHI for partnering with us on this in this important work. Um, with, with Rush, which is a large academic center, we're located on the southwest side of Chicago, and we serve a large portion. We have about a million visits a year, outpatient visits. Um, providing care to south and west uh, side communities. And it's important to note, just kind of as, for context, in the summer of, of 2016, last year, we changed our corporate mission from be the best in health care or in patient care to improve health. And it may sound subtle, but it's so very important um, t- toward the end of this work because we're talking about how we can improve health whether that's in the office or outside the office, factors that we can control with a pill and factors that we cannot. And it puts that, um, it makes that health equity a strategic priority here. And the reason that we did this is because we identified repeated ongoing health crises in the neighborhoods around us. You know, we're, excuse me, we're an anchor institution and we consider ourselves an anchor for the community and we want to do right by the community. Um, and so that means we need to participate in the high unemployment, the job scarcity, the poverty, public education, all the, all these social determinants that we see around us in our, in our neighborhoods. And so, um, that was a really great first step. And then the second step was just looking internally. And so we did a, uh, leadership survey. We we surveyed around 100 different individuals across the leadership spectrum at the medical center, at the university, and did a self-assessment of uh, people's awareness of, of health equity, what it means, you know, how we're doing, what people are, are thinking of or aware of with institutional racism. And we found that we're not doing as well as we had hoped, and I think that's going to be the case almost everywhere, um, but also that we have opportunities now and and let's you know start to think about this um it needs to start in both directions top and bottom and let's think about a strategy moving forward even if it's a, just a small step um we need to start somewhere and so uh, that really kicked things off and then we we you know partnered with this initiative and so we started to look at our data um uh, which is what i'm getting to here and so, as you see on the slide, um, we find these life expectancies to be vastly different between the west and south parts of the Sh- of Chicagoland area and the loop. And that has a lot to do with all of the social determinants that I just mentioned. Um, and when we started looking at um, not only just life ex- expectancy, but also um, how we're doing on various cardiovascular um, risk factors, which is kind of the focus of our work as a starting point, uh, we were finding pretty big disparities between how people were not only just the prevalence of disease, but more importantly, perhaps most importantly, um, how we were performing on our quality metrics with regard to those populations. So, we were perhaps a little surprised that um, white men and black men had about the same capture rate of of getting our ASCVD scores so being able to identify the the risk factors that are present uh raising someone's risk for heart attack or stroke um, we had about the same you know rate of missing components not having a cholesterol not having smoking status which is about 40% um, however within those two groups we found a significant um significantly lower performance across diabetic control, blood pressure control, smoking cessation within uh, the black and brown community. Um, and so it's, you can't just look at prevalence and look at, okay, here's, you know, this percentage of your practice is um, doing well on this measure and this is not. We have to look into these subgroups to identify what are the structural barriers, what are the other reasons at play here if we're ever going to improve health. Um, because I can engage with a patient repeatedly, whether they're in the ED, whether they're in the hospital, whether they're in my office every other week. I can ask them, you know, are you having problems with food security repeatedly? But if we don't do anything about it, then we're not really solving the puzzle. Um, And that's one of the key kind of key aspects of care that we are trying to get across to a lot of our providers in doing this work is that you can't just increase the frequency of care, or increase the level of care. We need to understand how the care is being utilized and, and how it's being made effective. Um, because if, if you're not affording a medication, we're not doing you any good. Um, so we need to be focused on improving health. So that's just kind of a high level. <clears throat> and we were able to leverage the we're participating in a Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, TCPI, a CMS initiative, which has allowed us to overlay cost of care um, onto our um, kind of quality of care. And so we're not only looking at how we're performing across different cardiovascular uh, efforts, we're also able to attribute cost of that care in these communities. And as you might imagine, we're finding disparities between these two things, um, between the areas of, of um, you know longer life expectancy, shorter life expectancy, but we're also finding that the you know we're providing worse care that's costing more money um, to communities that you know can't afford the care in the first place, and that we're you know we're not even optimizing the health. And so, it's kind of like, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Um, and when, we, when you kind of shed light onto this data and share it with your providers, uh, people really start to listen because you know, in practice, you see everyone that you're going to see day in and day out. If they're on my schedule, I'm going to see them, I'm going to do the best I can. We need to take a step back and look at the whole picture, the whole community, find ways to make it easier for providers to do the right thing and to provide better care. Um, and I think by shedding light on this, it makes people realize and recognize and want to engage in this work beyond just the four walls of their exam room. Um, and so some of the work we're doing to accomplish this is uh, we're, we're rolling out a social determinants of health screening tool. To actually quantify and, and put into a place that we can capture and measure and follow and track um, all these different social determinants of health and identify whether there's links to, you know, food insecurity and frequency of headaches or, you know, transportation and frequency of ED visits and a lot of these things, which right now <clears throat> aren't necessarily closely linked, like a lot of our other risk factors and other clinical metrics are, um, we're going to start to screen every single person that comes in the door so we can actually take action on all of these items that that screen positive. Um, and I don't have the tool in front of me, but we're going to provide that so that it can be shared with people. Um, we're just getting started with this initiative. We're doing it right now in the emergency department, but our hope is that by by really leveraging this data, putting it onto a map, showing people where these differences are, and then providing some resources. We've got a lot of great partnerships with the community around each and every one of these social determinants so that we actually have something we can offer our patients to help them through, um, and hopefully we'll start to see some, some better quality care.
1: Thanks so much, uh, Michael. We'll look uh, out for the tool and let people know uh, when it's available. Um, but as you can see from uh, some of the slides here, uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, documenting of kind of what the picture is, and then it becomes uh, the real challenge around uh, kind of interventions. And, uh, I want to just mention two other quick things that Michael ticked off for me. Uh, when pressed in an email, I was asking kind of what other things sort of turn up, uh, when you start trying to say, well, why, why, why does it look this way in your data? And you mentioned, um, the referral issues, uh, kind of disparities there. Well, guess what? This won't shock anyone. Uh, people being able to take advantage of referrals if they don't have. Transportation uh, that ends up uh, being a referral that wasn't uh, taken advantage of. So, where what is healthcare's role uh, in that? And there was also another one around. Uh, Realizing that you needed to eliminate radiology's requirement, that you had to bring a prior mammogram result before being scheduled um, for uh, your routine one. Uh, Obviously, eliminating that, or that's good news, increased access uh, quite a bit. So really appreciate, and that's part of what's going on in the learning, in the initiative. Um, I see Abby nodding her head. So if there's anything you want to say, just having listened to Michael, and then I was just going to go back to Amy me for a minute before we go to chat.
4: Yeah, I was just gonna, you know, say, you know, the it was great to hear all of the ways that Rush is getting involved and that the um we're sort of struggling with that too about when there isn't the resource, when there isn't food, because we were dealing with, you know, gentrification and the history of racial redlining in Boston. Um, then when does the institution itself get some skin in the game? um around policy work and that's that's hard right because it's we're we're, we're so bon- bonkers just trying to provide good primary care but that's a place that our health center has been involved in really for you know over a decade now is f- trying to pick and choose when we really need to show up and do some direct advocacy um, around food, around housing affordability, um, around transit justice, um, that, that, you know, when the, when it's really clear, and you can map it out that the resource just isn't there. And you can only provide so many lists, for example, to, you know, food pantries, and people are just, you know, not getting the right caloric intake, and then they're showing up and and you're titering their medication, but that's not really what the problem is. Um, so I just sort of really appreciate the level of engagement with social determinants that, that Rush is doing. And, you know, certainly our hospitals in Boston have quite a lot of pull as anchor organizations. And, um, you know, there's there's space for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, thank you all who've already been um, uh, rolling away here on the chat. By the way, uh, not that she's impersonating me, but every time you see Madge on the chat, <laughs> chat thus far, it's Amy. (laughs) She's got the controls. I took
3: over. I'm so eager to interact with all of you on the line here, get get to your questions and comments.
1: That's right. So uh, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But uh, while I'm talking, Amy has a chance uh, to type. So uh, we're going to go back just to these uh, takeaways there, John, just for a minute. I wanted Amy... Uh to just think about um I know we we sort of do some of this at the wrap up of a show but now that we've heard from Abby and Michelle and Michael um this is kind of emblematic of some of the things that are being learned and I wondered whether there are some good takeaways uh, already even for the organizations listening today.
3: Yes, absolutely. And what's really exciting is these two teams you've heard from today so far are part of this network of eight that also I just want to note includes health partners, Henry Ford Health System, Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Hospitals, Mainline Health, Northwest Colorado Health, and Vidant Health. So what's been exciting is even just having kicked off since April to be at the point now to have some learnings to reflect on uh, and share with all of you. And actually, one, as I was just listening to, to everyone sharing uh, some of their work so far, the importance of transparency came up for me. And for us to be able to say, hey, we we don't have this perfect, right? And we we want to improve as we go so important, and often we talk about where we are with equity in healthcare now. While well, for some this has been their life's work, for many this is reminiscent of the safety movement where you know years ago, decades ago, people didn't want to say we're harming patients mm-hmm. when we think about patient safety and the whole movement around patient safety. And now here we are with equity and the the ability, the willingness, the courage, um, recognizing the need to really speak up and say, hey, there's structural racism that's operating within health care, we perpetuate this and how can we, how can we be transparent about that, lift that up and work through that, that tough work, uh, together. Um, so I'm really inspired by that piece. So a couple of the takeaways that I want to highlight in terms of the learning. So one is for all of you to reflect on, is equity a strategic priority for you at your organization? Um, and does it show? So it might be, uh, you know, equity might be listed twice in a document that's sitting on the shelf, um, but but does it show? So is your leadership, when your leadership's talking about quality and talking about safety, are they also talking about equity? Um, you know, I've seen some great examples from these eight teams who are part of pursuing equity after events like the terror in Charlottesville, which, of course, is not new. It's the latest after various uh, examples of police brutality in communities of color, having CEOs of health systems send a note around after the trans ban in the military, sending a note around to their staff saying, hey, everyone is welcome here. We just want to be really clear about what we stand for. And so does it show that equity is a priority? Um, And and looking at what are the different ways, communication uh, being one of them. So that's one piece, one thing we're reflecting on in terms of what we're learning so far. Um, the second is, is making equity the way we work. So often we'll see equity work going on in kind of these different clinical pockets. Okay, we're, we're narrowing equity gaps in diabetes care. or We're narrowing equity gaps in readmissions. Um, and actually, I was recently talking with a colleague who, who was saying, you know, of course, in those areas, because those are big cost drivers, but we also need to be looking at equity in areas like maternal and infant health the maternal mortality gap between black and white women is huge and it is sickening actually. So, um, So thinking not just about equity in these kind of clinical pockets, but making it the way that we work, making it the standard way. This is how we look at all of our data. This is the analysis we're working from and how we design our work. So that's some of our learning, too, is that is that moving from one area to the broader organization. And then third is this piece around addressing institutional racism. I mean, some people even say, like, they they want to whisper, like, racism. It's like, wow. We don't want to say it out loud. OK, so how do we socialize our organizations to this topic? How do we provide some training? And then how do we move beyond these kind of conversations to actually looking at our own policies, practices, structures to then say what needs to change about the way that we are doing our work um, so that we're not contributing and, in fact, that we can ameliorate these these gaps that we continue to see. Uh, and so that's a, another big kind of takeaway for us is is just the tough work that goes into this, um, but necessary. I'll stop there.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I want to, uh, or second or third or fourth of all, I want to thank uh, all the comments that are coming in on the chat. Remember, this is a valuable tool to take the chat. Uh, download it uh, when uh, you're done with the show. You'll see a lot of links and resources and reflections in here. Uh, this is how many of us learn uh, about things others are doing. Michelle Morse, I want to bring you back in here, and um, I'll, I'll try not to whisper this, but I do understand you're doing some power mapping and leadership mapping, uh, which again, kind of an interesting, provocative comment, uh, excuse me, uh, notion uh, in terms of, again, the community and the big academic teaching hospital working together. Can you talk at all about that? We'll start off with you. Maybe Abigail can weigh in too. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um, I think it was one of the most important um, early steps of our joint um, team. Um, And I think that one of the tools that we often don't look to are tools outside of kind of the traditional medical tools, the traditional tools of the practice of medicine. Um, And this is a tool that really comes from community organizing traditions. But um, if we want to make this commitment at a strategic level, we want our leadership to make a commitment. Then, at a strategic and big picture level to ensuring health equity and addressing issues of health equity, then part of what we have to understand is, well, who are the stakeholders and and what decision-making um, opportunities do they have to really, again, make this choice um, to p- pursue and to address health equity? Um, and doing some power mapping and leadership mapping and stakeholder mapping, um, to really understand um, who are the key folks at the leadership level um, at Brigham and Women Centrally um, that we can collaborate with, that we can work with, that we can help to convince that using, using a racial justice framework is the right way, is the right approach to understanding and having, as Abby said, a shared analysis, a shared understanding of why health inequities exist and how, again, a racial justice framework is going to allow us to more effectively addresses inequities. Um, And so that um, power mapping, I think, has really helped us to understand how we can best engage leaders in our organization and how we can work together to build partnerships um, with those leaders to help them feel comfortable saying structural racism specifically um, and also help them recognize that we have to be more honest as healthcare providers, as healthcare institutions in what it actually takes to address health equity. Um, And it takes much more than diversity and inclusion. That is not the end game. Um, And I think uh, just to, to reinforce that, I think it's also an opportunity for us as healthcare providers to practice intersectionality. And lots of us are hearing intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw's work and it's really out there in the mainstream dialogue now and it's becoming a commonly used term but what does intersectionality look like for health providers, for healthcare institutions, and for healthcare leaders? It's the practice of social medicine. It's really stepping beyond the walls of our ivory tower and really engaging uh, at a different level with, again, a shared analysis that includes structural racism and a racial justice approach. And I, I don't know if Abby wants to add to that.
4: Yeah, I I would say that it's a wonderful way. And a lot of the the stuff also, in in addition to Kimberly Crenshaw, there's some great work at PolicyLink, back to the whole, like, we need to step outside of medical systems and, and start to collaborate with others who have different tools. But Angela Glover Blackwell at PolicyLink um, talks a lot about designing with and for the margins. So if we can think about, you know, we always say if we could have, you know, Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center and Brigham Women's Hospital work really well for transgender Black women in North Dorchester, and I would say undocumented and disabled, you can kind of do the thought process with this. It's really going to work well for everyone because, uh, what they need and would are telling us they need are things that I also know I'm going to need when I bring my kids in the pediatric department. Um, and, and it just gets, it, you know, you really start to think about how to get as, as intersectional in terms of a person occupying multiple identities at once that are uh, being faced with oppression. The other other tool I just wanna share that has been so useful for us also is um, racial equity impact assessments. So you can get those from uh, Race Forward, the Center for Racial Justice Innovation and the folks at GARE, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. And it's essentially a series of questions that you can ask as you are developing policy or practice, or you can go back and look at your existing policy. And I mean, small P like you can look at your email policy and essentially ask who's this going to benefit and who's it going to harm and be very race and, and inter- intersectional race, class, gender explicit about that. Um, and you'll find out that a lot of stuff that we consider neutral neutrality usually will reproduce inequity. Unfortunately, neutral doesn't get us there. If we keep going with the, Neutral stuff, it's not going to change, right? And that's sort of the definition of insanity. So um, again, there's so many great online Googleable, you know, tools that we started using. Um, and I'm happy to send links, you know, to be much more, you know, like send them out to Madge so you can get them to people.
1: Okay, we'll um, look up uh, the uh, organizations that Abigail mentioned <clears throat> and make sure we can get a link. And if we can't get it in there live now before the hour is up, we promise so we'll have it on the resource uh, document. Uh, Michael, <clears throat> excuse me, Michael Hannock, Somebody is interested in your work on hypertension, uh, noted in your bio, and uh, is just would like to know a little bit more about that and. Uh, how it may uh, even relate to what we're talking about today.
5: Sure. Um, Yeah, we we kicked off a quality improvement project around blood pressure control last year and we're pretty successful with it. Um, A big part of it was uh, first of all just identifying those hypertensives within our EHR, we use EPIC, um, but making sure that that blood pressure was highlighted and kind of within view, so no matter what the patient was coming in with, we knew that that was something we wanted to address. That was kind of point one. Point two was that we found in uh, studying groups and and kind of going through this process that if we could get patients back in for another visit within four weeks, so getting that short term four week follow-up, that they were controlled eighty percent of the time and if they were back again within three months having had that visit they were controlled ninety percent of the time so a big part of our blood pressure initiative was just getting people to return follow-up take their medicine alert us to problems with it kind of all the general things you would expect um, you know to encounter if you were counseling someone on their blood pressure management but just making sure that that patient returned and so before anyone leaves with an elevated blood pressure, there's an automated message that goes to our front staff saying, "Make sure you schedule a four week follow up for this reason." Um, and so people weren't allowed to leave while well, they were allowed to leave, but we tried to keep them uh, and get them scheduled before they left the office forgetting you know about all the things that we had just talked about uh, and then the last thing was that we went and did a um kind of a campaign of sorts for teaching and training and refreshing competencies around checking blood pressure, uh, making sure that all of our frontline staff were checking appropriately and following the the various components of of a pressure, feet flat on the floor. Empty bladder, resting for five minutes, et cetera. And so we we generated this. Um, actually, I didn't think we we made it. I think we took it from the CDC or the AMA. This picture that has kind of the eight or nine different components of getting a good blood pressure, and we put that on the wall in every exam room. So patients would even correct the staff and say, "Hey, I mean you know, I I think I might have to use the restroom. So maybe we should wait before you take this pressure." Um, and so that was really effective to getting that done right. And then the other thing. Uh, which probably help more with the numbers but making sure we're not getting false elevations is that the providers were always asked to repeat that blood pressure midway or toward the end of the visit which is something we don't do. We get caught up in the other complaints that they're in for. We make sure that um, when that pressure is high and it's highlighted and the staff has alerted us to it before we go on the door that we repeat it later um, and we're getting a lot of great values uh, as a result of that Just just from people settling into the office visit maybe feeling less. Less nervous about it, uh, the pressure comes down, so that that combination of factors, along with an educational document around um, there's some blood pressure control algorithms that we did provide to people, but I think on the whole, physicians know how to manage blood pressure. There's a lot of different ways you can go. It doesn't need to be prescribed very specifically. Um, we made that available, but it was more about just making sure you do it, um, and so that's that's kind of what we've done.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. A couple of questions uh, that have popped up uh, in the uh, chat scroll. One, uh, somebody is asking whether institutional racism is evident in building design. Uh, and the structures, uh, the physical structures themselves. Um, I don't know who might want to uh, say something about that. I uh, chatted Amy.
0: some
3: of this in, but I'm interested yeah. to hear from our colleagues. But one of the first things I thought about, um, and actually it was here in the IHI offices too, so you all know we, the IHI, are working on this as well alongside our teams. But you walk into a facility and you see what are the names of all of the rooms and who are the who's who are the pictures of uh, of, on the wall. And it, and who is the, you know, who are the, the monuments that you have, if you will, or the symbols you have about who matters, you know, whose knowledge matters, who's smart, who's worthy. Uh, so that's one really explicit way. And another that I had noted was just about where we build these buildings, where we choose to put our, our facilities in. Um, uh, and who then is able to have access to those facilities. And actually thinking about using data for that, there's a lot of great mapping out there showing just the distances that people have to travel to get to the care that they need. What What would you add?
4: I, I would only just add the, the often pretty
3: hard history about who gets
4: displaced when buildings are built. So there's quite a history between the Mission Hill community in Boston and Brigham Women's Hospital um, that's out there. Everybody knows it, but we, we really don't go back and talk about it. And, you know, folk have a lot of feelings about what happened when the hospital came and the parking lots that were built mm-hmm. and the air quality issues that happened. So there's a little bit of reconciliation. I think that um, if it was more explicitly discussed, I think would help folks heal and think about what solutions and a reparations process would look like. But, and I don't, I'm not throwing Brigham under the bus. I think this is ma- most hospitals, you know, are, are contribute to gentrification and other issues that lead to displacement of low income people of color.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's do this. We're uh, getting to the top of the hour. Let's go around the horn and I'm going to stop or start with Michelle uh, and then ma- Abigail and Michael and then Amy um, kind of sort of parting ideas and uh, what what's uh, kind of next on the horizon? I mean, you're already deep into a lot of things, but what might, might if we got you back here uh, in a couple of months or even six months uh, to a year, what might we learn about? Uh, why don't I start with Michelle?
2: Yeah, thank you. I think there's a Uh, again, a a really exciting window of opportunity at Brigham right now. And and we're very excited about the four kind of project charters that we'll be working on together um, with SJP um, through pursuing equity over the coming uh, several years. I think one of the ones that I'm particularly excited about is that there has always been certain observations by clinicians practicing at Brigham about certain um, inequities that we have noticed. And a lot of those come out of how in various services um, at the hospital. And so um, one of the many initiatives that we're excited to move forward with is, is this initiative around really understanding how triage is happening and really trying to investigate a bit further um, what are some of the forces and drivers of uh, who goes where and why um, and how does having a primary care doctor, for example, or a subspecialist um, in the system, impact where you go and to what service you go. Um, And so my hope is that we'll be able to report back some just ideas and and early um, information about what that looks like in our hospital um, and, uh, again, I, I think that the collaboration between the inpatient kind of Department of Medicine side and, and the health center at Southern Jamaica Plain is going to really be what allows us to step out of the ivory tower again and really rethink um, how we're engaging and thinking about um, health equity and ensuring that we're not just reinventing and repeating the same blind spots that the institutions have had for quite some time.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Abigail.
4: Thanks. I, I mean, I, I really... I think this is movement work. So I, I feel like in a couple of years or even, you know, just within this time that we're working with IHI, I, I'm hoping that we're going to build a much deeper bench of folks that have share an analysis. And I, I'm really looking forward to the work um, that we're doing on building the patient provider alliance that sort of emerged out of the liberation in the exam room process. And folks will have access to that document soon. And I think we'll be able to show that when you manifest your your deep structural intersectional knowledge, um, Your folks you work with actually do better. And I think that the docs experience working actually improves too. So um, I'm really interested in like the stuff we can do. Like we stand where we sit, right? We can get, we can do something tomorrow in our office, on our team. And so I'm looking forward to be able to report back on some measurable stuff that we've been practicing uh, with some of our allies.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Abigail. Uh, The liberation in the exam room was a subject of something that was in an early stage when we looked at it the last time on WIHI. Uh, There's a lot to that, but one very important component is really how to open up a discussion in the exam room. Uh, give some room, uh, by asking questions about a patient's experience, uh, with, with racism or feeling in some ways, uh, not treated, uh, the same and what that, what that can provide. Um, so just a, a, a small sense of that. So more on that to come. Michael, uh, what's, what's next <laughs> or where, where do you go from, uh, where you are right now?
5: Yeah. I I, I want to echo some of this about, about the awareness. I mean, I, I hope that in, in two years when we repeat this, this leadership survey, I don't have a single response that says, and we had one, that says, I'm not sure what more we can do. Um, that's first. Uh, second is that I want all of the people that work with and within the institution here and maybe any any healthcare institution to feel like they know what they can do to help and to do more and to make this a, a part of what we do every day. This non-clinical work um, is is part of the clinical work. It's part of what we should be doing in our offices and outside in our communities. And so I I really I really want to just bring up the level of awareness so that everyone knows, yeah, I can have a hand in this and and I know where you can go to to get help with this thing that's not a medication. Um, so I, I really want want to see us move in that direction.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Michael from Rush. Amy, I never really got to tap into, you know, or ask you what are examples of what some of the other partners are working on. So I don't want to kind of open up that whole vista right now. But if there's You know, uh, even just a few uh, examples, because we're going to start hearing about more of this, um, I think, on this program and more from IHI in Uh, days to
3: come. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Madge. Um, There's some incredible work that that this group of eight teams are doing. Um, One team looking at their workforce and the pay of their workforce and living wage of their workforce. Um, And so just some some really exciting work. Um, and we're eager, you know, in two years from now to be able to have some more tools, lessons, methods that can be shared more broadly to help U.S. healthcare see the way forward for impacting equity. Okay. All right. Uh, any final thoughts?
1: Uh, Amy, uh, people can look at the website. Uh, right now, there is an area of IHI.org. Uh, And um, we're just going to keep trying to bubble up uh, some of the learning. And certainly, uh, if you're thinking about the IHI National Forum uh, coming up, uh, you'll hear more uh, about uh, these initiatives as they evolve. So big thank you to Michelle, to Abigail, to Michael, to Amy. A lot goes into (laughs) developing a program behind the scenes. And there's so much that's going on just amongst these institutions that I ask people people to condense uh, so that we can at least touch upon it on WIHI, so I'm very grateful for folks' willingness to do that. Uh, big thank you also to our audience. You have uh, shared a lot with one another today, and I hope you'll take advantage of uh, that networking and the information uh, that you've shared. Next up on Chai on September 15th, not out of summer quite yet, we're going to be talking about uh, tuning up health system boards for patient safety. You know, uh, the board of directors, uh, trustees in health systems have a huge role to play with equity, as they do with all these issues. And there's a lot of uh, talk right now about how uh, boards really, uh, in some sense, Uh, get up to speed on being able uh, to uh, play a really strong role uh, in moving all these issues forward. So I hope you'll tune in uh, for that. Again, check out the archive pages for WIHI, uh, where you'll find a download of the audio and all the resources for the program. Look for it on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes, and that's how you'll get this show. Any questions whatsoever, any confusion, call, excuse me, email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make Chai possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val Weber, Mina Hadley, and Kiki Yee. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming together to talk about health equity. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.